are you really? Oh. Van Munchausen isn't real. He's only in stories. Go away. I'm trying to die. Why? Because I'm tired of the world. <laughs> the world is evidently tired of me. But why? Why? Why, why, why? Because it's all logic and reason now. No place for three-legged cyclops in the South Seas. No place for cucumber trees and oceans of wine. No place for me. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we're going to be discussing The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Starring John Neville, Sarah Polly, Eric Idle and Uma Thurman. Directed by Terry Gilliam. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I've learned from experience that a modicum of snuff can be most efficacious. It's Gally in Glasgow. Is there a doctor in the fish? It's Devlin in London. Oh yes, and you're a pillow biter, huh? It's Patrick calling from Anik <laughs> this time. <laughs> what an absolute shock that that would be the line. It's nice to, nice to speak to you boys, it's been a while. It has, yeah, it has. We've had our little uh, first quarter hiatus. We're doing a a throwback, and it's your choice, isn't it, Devlin? Uh, What are we doing today? Uh, Today we are going to be watching uh, Terry Gilliam's, well, we already watched it. We're going to be talking about Terry Gilliam's uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen from either 1988 or 1989, depending on how you measure these things. Okay, I think it was just 1988, but okay. Yeah, it's a, I guess it's a quirk. It was released in West Germany in 88 and in the US and the UK in 89. So I guess I would usually have said 89 because otherwise we wouldn't have seen it before then. But I was five and I didn't see it then anyway. So doesn't matter. So I'd never I'd never seen this film before uh, you you picked it. Uh, Patrick, had you seen it? I thought I had. And I think in the last podcast I said, oh, I've seen this, but years ago. Do you mm. know what? I've never seen it. And do you know oh, what I thought it happened? Right. This is going to sound really weird. When I was younger... There must have been a VHS or VHS is plural that I used to watch that had the trader for this. On. Right. And I used to watch that VHS all the time. I don't remember what it was, Karate Kid. I don't, I don't remember, but the trailer must have had such an impression on me that I thought, I don't know, that I'd seen the film somehow. And I thought it was just like a lost memory. But then when I was watching, I was like, I've never seen this bloody film. And then I remembered the trailer really vividly when I was a lot younger. Why I had no recollection of this from, from childhood. Like um, I didn't see this film until I was like 18 as I'm sure everyone who looked this up would have noticed that it, it did not do particularly well upon its release. Uh, it was for a long time considered to be one of the all time box office calamities. It was up there with, you know, Cleopatra and Ishtar held up as a, a kind of act of hubris and financial failure it's strange isn't it but it kind of there's quite a lot of parallels with um with costner's Waterworld in the in the sense that we we kind of established that maybe the hollywood press were were kind of after costner um 
at that point. I I don't know about you, but from doing the research in this film, mm. it feels like maybe the studio system in Hollywood were were after Terry Gilliam after the trials and tribulations on Brazil, right? Yes. Or am I just reaching? No, no, that's that's his telling of the story, and obviously that's the only one we have to go on. So um, the battles over Brazil were kind of legendary at the time, and uh, it was Sid Sheinberg who was the uh, the head of, of Universal at the time when they when they purchased the rights to distribute Brazil in in the states, and what he wanted to do was recut it and and put a happy ending on it. If if you remember the end of Brazil, it ends with Jonathan Price alone in a disused gas tower having been tortured into a catatonic state uh they didn't want that spoilers yeah, yeah. sorry everyone. of course hollywood didn't want that of course yeah they went up for that so um so they went ahead and they and they uh they created a new version of it and there's a um it's a sort of happy ending or a yeah it really undercuts the entire purpose of that film so uh, he went public he he put ads out in the trade papers to say uh when are you going to release my movie he was on the tv talk shows and because terry gilliam is a guy who um uh as a filmmaker was carrying some clout at that point because time bandits had done unusually well for a film of its type and of course he carried a lot of goodwill with him from being a, a python for all those years so um yeah the uh Riding high off the end of uh, of Brazil, he went into uh, this was a, a a book that he'd wanted to adapt for a while. Um, he was uh, really inspired by the 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 illustrations in a, a later version. Gustave Doré was the illustrations, which you guys will have seen because I have one of them tattooed on my left arm. Mm, you do <laughs> okay. Um, that's why that's why that that's what that weird old man on my left arm is. I remember. Huh? So. Um, uh, he wanted to adapt this book, and he went off. Uh, he paired with, uh, so he was initially paired with Arnon Milchan, kind of legendary producer, but they sort of parted ways because apparently he wasn't a, a huge fan of how Gilliam was handling the fallout from Brazil. So uh, passed him off to a, a German producer called Thomas Schuli, who decided that they were going to make the film with uh, funding that they'd received from Columbia Pictures in this case. Columbia Pictures at that point was headed by David Putnam. Who um I don't know if you know his name Patrick yeah, yeah. like he's yeah the Gold, kind of legendary uh I believe so I only really know him from Chariots of Fire yeah Goldcrest yeah. mm. oh no well, so, I may be wrong sorry I'm gonna look that up carry on mm. um yeah the kind of legendary British producer who was brought in uh to to head up Columbia and kind of sh- shake things up a bit and they they gave them f- some of the funding and much like with all of Gilliam's films there tended to be a kind of uh, Frankenstein's monster of funding in place for this stuff but they managed to get the money together and during production which was thomas shuley was not particularly experienced as a producer he was kind of uh also a bit of a fantasist himself and gilliam responded to that initially but then realized that you can't make a film where somebody is 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 lying his ass off the whole time and and running two sets of books and money went missing and and the funding wasn't there in the first place the budget was at least 15 million pounds under what it should have been to make a film of this type um but uh so yeah the 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 production collapsed and the collapse was very advantageous to a new head of columbia pictures who were keen to you know like like apparently in all these studios when you get a change of head if you're in in production at the time your film tends to get kind of either swept under the rug or thrown under the bus you're going under something one way or the other 
So, well, I, I think I think that speaks to any kind of change in management, isn't it? Normally, when whenever you get someone who comes into any kind of organisation, change for change's sake, sometimes, isn't it? And and obviously, in this case, it was. Well, we're not. I didn't underwrite this film. I didn't support it, so yeah. I'm not going to do it now. And that's exactly. what it seems like it, the case with with Munchausen, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the the production itself was was plagued by uh, setbacks. They were two weeks behind schedule before they'd even shot. Somehow, they were oh. over budget before they'd even turned film. But didn't they um, didn't even stand down for two weeks as well? Because it was they did. Yeah, they brought told him the, he um, didn't have the moon sequence and. Yeah, they they brought in the um the the completion guarantors and uh, what do they call it the the insurance thing? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They come in, they they bring him in, and they basically they tried to remove him from the film. Uh, there was talk of the film basically just being abandoned halfway through. Apparently, it was uh, Eric Idle amongst others uh, uh, had to g Gilliam up because he was essentially like willing to walk out on it. Uh, and he got it's shouted crazy at by... to film something this massive abroad though as well. You know. Mm. Foreign language speaking country as well. Like I can't imagine the problems that you'd have on something so huge, along with all these monetary problems. Yeah, a guy who's—I mean—in at this point, he's still only on his fourth feature film, I guess. And um, right, yeah. Uh, and Brazil was was a UK based production. Uh, Time yeah. Bandits UK based production. Jabberwocky was very local UK based production. So to suddenly be in, uh, so they 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 shot this in uh, Chinachita. In, in Rome. And of course, that means that, the, you know, they were using the uh, uh, Roman crew and they were using um, the, the kind of great craftsmen of there. But we'll get onto it, I'm sure, a lot later. But the uh, cinematographer was uh, uh, Giuseppe Rotuno. Um, and the uh, production designer was Dante Ferretti, who's done a lot of uh, incredible work back in the, well, throughout the last few decades of Italian cinema and beyond. But, um, Working with them, he said, was really inspiring because uh, Gilliam was always a big fan of uh, Fellini. But it came with problems in that the the way of disseminating information through the crew, as uh, again, Patrick, I'm sure you know more than most, the way that the crew um, has to uh, coordinate with each other and, and, and stuff. You have a UK-based crew who were doing a lot of the effects work because that was all the peerless camera company. Uh, you had uh, you had the Italian crew who were the, the bulk of the crew. You had Spanish crew. Apparently, you also had German crew coming in from Thomas Schuley. I don't know. Have you ever worked on anything with that kind of with that level of international crewing? I mean, yeah and no, because right? they're all English speaking, and you know you get a very diverse crew in in London now anyway. But I worked on a TV show uh, two years ago that was Italian, so it came over from Italy. Right. And there was translators all over the shop. Um, I worked on something called McMafia as well, which was mainly Russian, uh, actors. And that was a really okay. interesting vibe there that we had, you know, translators. And it's, it's a fascinating to see a director try and doesn't speak the language, you know, direct a language that he doesn't know and trusting the actors. To, Cause, you know, if you hear an inflection in English that you don't like, you can direct, you can amend, but if mm. an inflection in Russian or Italian or something is a bit different, then how do you go about that? I'm not sure. I, you know, I've worked abroad, I've worked in Iceland, and that was interesting working with an Icelandic crew who are um, very nice. I like the Icelandic crew, but let's say very, um, very relaxed <laughs> when right. it comes to time <laughs> restrictions, shall we say. And I've heard that of many other countries like Italy and 
Oh, I'll tell you an anecdote of one of my friends, Paul, Paul Bennett, tells me a great story of working in Italy on Man from Uncle. <laughs> uh, where he said he was at the bottom of a hill at the unit base, sending actors up the hill to, um, the first AD. <clears throat> and he sent them like, yeah, great. He's in, in with the driver. This is Italian driver. And he said he had a moment of, hmm, that driver. I don't like the way he smiled at me. Okay, fine. No, don't worry about it. He's got, he's got 300 meters to drive. He can't go wrong. And next thing he's getting shouted out by the first AD, like, where's this bloody actor? We've been waiting ages. Like, oh God, I sent him. I don't know. So Paul ran up the hill and there was a coffee shop halfway up and he found the driver <laughs> and the actor outside the coffee shop <laughs> drinking coffee out in the <laughs> sun, just chilling out. <laughs> yeah, that was oh, great. I love that story. Devlin, so you are going to be our, our sort of our expert on all things Terry Gilliam. And, and me and Patrick both know from our experiences at university with you that he is something of a of an idol for you, certainly as a creative. Well, he was kind of the reason I, I went to film school, to be honest. But not because of this film, though. What, because of Brazil, I imagine? Uh, oddly, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Ooh. Um, I, I, I bought that on video when I was like 16. And I just, I, I always liked films when I was a kid, but this is the first time I'd ever seen a film where I just thought somebody made this. Like it felt like, like so idiosyncratic and unlike anything else I'd ever seen that I just thought, well, there has to be, you know, a driving imagination behind this that, uh, it, it was, I guess the first inklings of the idea of a film author, which is a kind of weird concept, I guess. And, yeah, yeah. It's never strictly true because everything is always a product of uh, of collaboration, including that film. Obviously, it was an adaptation of a Hunter S. Thompson novel and uh, stuff. But I guess it just hit me at the right time, and it was the it was the the aggressively strange choices that he made with everything, mm. where um, his films aren't like other people's films. I'm gonna say he's very esoteric, isn't he? Well, he makes proper films, doesn't he? Mm. Like proper films with scope and vision and like narrative that I think that's why he has such problems. I think that's why this film probably didn't do as well in the box office because he wants to make films. He doesn't want to just pander to Hollywood and make the usual story. Mm -hmm. That's what you get. And is it interesting? It absolutely is. His vision is rarely compromised. He'll always fail by landing on his own sword, I guess, won't he? He's never going to, he's never going to change. I've always considered Gilliam as a kind of like, Hollywood's nearly man, you know, nearly made Watchmen could have made a Harry Potter. I, I think, mm. I think uh, the sequences later on in this film that reminded me of, um, and forgive me, of like Pirates of the Caribbean, where I'm like, well, they've kind of just stolen Terry Gilliam's look here and yeah. then made a whole film around it. And you just think, well, why wouldn't you just get Terry Gilliam? Well, speaking of Harry Potter, like Alfonso Cuaron even said that Gilliam and Baron Munchausen was a, was an inspiration to him as well, and he did. For me, from whatever I've read about his reputation, it's this kind of wild, manic, out of control director whose mind just spills out with all these creative ideas. And actually, trouble seems to follow him on sets, right? So Hmm. the making of Don Quixote back in the 90s is just another infamous story of a studio debacle where productions halted after two days of filming. If anything, it's it's such a bizarre anomaly that he got to have the amount of mainstream successes that he did and that any film studio ever thought that they would make money off this stuff. Um, the fact that he had this big public, you know, 
uh, uh, battle over releasing Brazil. And as we've pointed out, it's he's battling to to save a film which is completely esoteric. is set in an indeterminate point in an imaginary alternative twentieth century. It's it's a uh, it's like a Kafka influenced uh, farce, but it's also a fantasy film, and it's and it's it ends with a, a fully depressing ending. <laughs> it's 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 strange and his influences have never been the kind of things that are going to be successful either i mean he's as when you go through baron munchausen for for one thing he said that you know he's influenced by the classical illustrations of gustave dore and then there's botticelli and then there's uh there's there's dante and there's the look of his films and the the feel of his um production design feels more like like uh pasolini than anything else so it's, it's I guess, a, a bit of a miracle that we have the amount of films that we do from him. Well, I wanted to make one comparison, just for, just for people that maybe haven't seen many Terry Gilliam films outside of, you know, the, the more mainstream ones or the ones that garnered more success, like 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing. Um, I think had Gilliam done what Burton did, Tim Burton, and made, because Tim Burton makes Batman and, you know, his that aesthetic his visual style is then pulled through his entire career but people know tim burton they know tim burton films yeah i do wonder outside of like pure cinephiles how many people really know terry gilliam films is that fair i mean or a lot of people will probably have the association with python more than anything yeah you'd picture the the animations in in python which Is an aesthetic that does sort of carry over. Um, certainly in terms of like his, um, I always felt that his his timing and certain set uh, like set pieces, there's a tendency towards like, uh, I don't know, the, Python. The image that I always get is of that big foot just coming down and smashing everything. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. it's like yeah. childish and violent, and that is a thing that he does a lot in his films. Mm-hmm. Just these these very naive very lowbrow explosions of violence but again those illustrations that he was doing and the animations were all cut outs from you know classical art history and and his and, and stuff like that he's he's clearly well read and well researched but he just like smashing these things together to see what they do mm. um I, I didn't see uh t- i read the book because you lent me at the tideland and i didn't mm. see the imaginarium of dr panassus but okay it's that I wonder if in his, I haven't seen them. So in his, in those films, because he's quite a physical director, which I loved in seeing this in Baron Munchausen. Yeah. Does he go more computer animated in Thailand and Parnassus? I, I don't believe you've seen mm. Don Quixote yet because the cinemas are closed. I, I haven't, unfortunately. Um, it was released for like a day. And we were recording yeah, a podcast yeah. actually the day that. Uh, oh, shit, right. Out. So um, uh, I've been kind of holding off on that one. Um, so the, the, the later films, the kind of the post collapse of Don Quixote version one. So you had Tideland initially. Tideland was a bit of a reset. Um, and is actually a, a very physical film. It's also a very small, very, very, very small scale film. It's basically set in one house. Yeah. Out mm-hmm. in a cornfield. Obviously, you've read the book, so you know that it's. And it's outside of some embellishments, it is largely physical. Um, but there isn't much in the way of effects to it. There's one sequence where. Um, uh, the lead character, Jeliza Rose, is swimming through the the, the house, which is uh, CGI. But he's also he's doing I guess like it's a really really lo-fi, almost like Michel Gondry influence thing of just waving pieces of um, 
blue plastic in front of the lens, which is pretty great. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, a lot of people really hate Tideland. I should point that out. It's a very divisive film. You didn't. Um, I didn't. No, I, you I, loved it. We really we did. were we were outside of the Leeds Film Festival at university, mm-hmm. desperate to get in to meet him and yeah. get a copy of Fear and Loathing. Gosh, yeah. yeah. Oh my god. I forgot uh, what I remember, that was for yeah. um, the Brothers Grimm. The uh, yeah, I saw uh, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so did I. Oh. I saw the one for free actually because my friend, my housemate Ash, worked at the Light in Leeds at the time, oh, which yeah. was a really good cinema actually. I got in to see loads of films for free, including Curse of the Were Rabbit. Fuck yeah! Oh, nice. The <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, that, that was. Uh, I, I often always, I often forget that he did actually direct Brothers Grimm. It sort of slips my mind completely. Which is but that, um, that's his commercial one, though, isn't it? He needed to make some money, and I think that was his because that's his most profitable film. Hmm. Which is strange because it is rubbish. It was like somebody doing a poor cover version of a Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, yeah, I but, agree. Yeah. Um, so that uh, Panassas has some great ideas and some great sequences, and a, a really wonderful practical set of the actual Imaginarium itself, which is drawn a lot. I think it's horse drawn. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's this huge kind of fold out. Um, kind of like the stage set at the beginning of Baron Munchausen when they're creating the play. So it's again like mm. lots of proper cutouts and and stuff. But once you go into the world itself and everything becomes computer generated, yeah, you you really do feel the the loss of of that sort of tactile. Those amazing like Peerless Camera Company, the work that they were doing with Gilliam in the eighties was just that was always the thing that that pulled me in, especially on this film. These films are expected to be commercial because they're extremely expensive, and they're not. And it's because they're aggressively uncommercial. One of his favorite filmmakers is this guy called Valerian Borovchik, who was an experimental animator who went on to do really like very fucked up, but really beautifully production designed porn. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and then, what and a then, twist. like. And then later in his career, he just went into doing legit lowbrow smut. Like, I think he directed, like, Emmanuel 9 or something. But um, <laughs> there's, there's a, a film called like, Immoral. Space. Yeah. This is, um, so, I, and this is, like, this is a guy that Gilliam champions. And, and, and we'll talk about it in interviews. And it's like, well, I mean, how many parents are going to take their eight-year-old to see that guy's film? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned interviews because I think we would be remiss, wouldn't we, to to discuss the man just before, without... just before we go on to that. It was David Putnam of Gold Crest. I was right. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm very oh, happy. Right Thanks, Anakin. Yes. Um, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, I after the last podcast when you said about um, his comments in the in January, I deliberately I, I, I kind of know briefly Devlin, but I wanted you to tell me so I can. I don't know what happened. Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, I think we would be remiss not to mention it. So, Dablin, can you can you give us the the backstory of what what happened earlier this year? I can give you a, a, a little. Um, it's I, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of from what I've seen of it because I, I tend not to interact too heavily with with Twitter and whatnot. Um, but I was very immediately aware of an impending cancellation of, of Terry Gilliam. And it was based on some interviews that he gave. And so I looked at the comments that he made and um, uh, the the general tenor of them is, is a disappointingly prosaic view of 
older white male has decided that the world is no longer made for him and is just sort of very petulant about it. Oh, so, uh, so he is giving interviews where he's decided now that he says, paraphrasing here, but pretty accurately paraphrasing, uh, white guys get blamed for everything. So I've now decided that I'm going to be a black lesbian in transition. Oh, um, yeah. So that oh. was the main one. He's been running around saying that for like a year and a half now. It's 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 becoming just. It was it was a stupid thing to say initially, and now he's just doubling and tripling down on it. And the this kind of all flared up around the time when when Don Quixote was finally finished, and but was you know he was he was being locked in another battle, and everyone just you would have thought that most people would want to be on his side for this because this is, again, this is a guy who's had to overcome all this stuff and this is his dream project. And he's a guy well into his seventies now. And, you know, he deserved to, to have this finally come to fruition. And the fact that he managed to get Jonathan Price and Adam Driver into his cast and that it was coming out around the time when both of them were nominated for Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. This is like a fucking slam dunk. And this is what he comes out with. And he's giving interviews saying that he felt that Black Panther was bullshit and that it was giving uh, um, kids of color like a bullshit idea of what the world is. And mm. I, why, I mean, the, the subtext there is not a subtext at all. It is the text. Like, why is it that out of 20 something plus Marvel movies, Black Panther is the one that is bullshit, you know? Ha, has um, he ever been outspoken before is it just now now really and that's the that's kind of the worst thing because i went to a talk um that he gave at the south bank center a couple of years back when he was writing his uh, autobiography which i also have this big huge illustrated autobiography called gilliam esque and um nothing in that interview particularly set any alarm bells off so I don't know where this came from, but <laughs> get Terry some help. It's a, it's a kind of post Weinstein thing. But the thing is, I mean, like he had every reason to, to, you know, dislike Harvey Weinstein as a personal, on a personal level, because Harvey Weinstein produced the brothers Grimm and he said he had an awful mm. experience making that. Yeah. So yeah. why he suddenly decided that me too is it's, it's, it's unfortunate that this is the attitude he's taken. And it's unfortunate because for a guy whose entire career has been prided on such imagination and creating these wonderful worlds and also I mean, imagination and, and, and also like, you know, that there's uh, underdog kind of feelings to, to, you know, to kind of pulling for the underdog against these systems that are set up to oppress them. And then you suddenly twig, but every time it's a, a white male who's going up against these systems of oppression, and then you think, well, so what was going on in the background and then and then you just think it's it's a shame because i've always felt that imagination and empathy should should be kind of interlinked if you can be imaginative then you can imagine what things are like for other people and if you can imagine what it's he, like for other people he then certainly you can... appears to be a progressive through his yeah. art work and his yeah no absolutely that he, uh, that's what that's so what doesn't make sense. a liberal person through his work yeah, yeah. so where this this thing i mean I have a I have a bullshit theory, which is that I I feel that there's a certain type of like formerly iconoclastic white male who used to pride themselves on being of the the vanguard of of progressive thought. When the world tends to overtake them or lap them, or you know they have to take on board more than they have the capacity to do so because they're so used to being outspoken, they can't mm. stop doing it. The voices stop being heard. 
but then they realize that well nobody's paying attention to me anymore and i used to be the one who gets to shout this stuff and instead of taking a step back and maybe encouraging other people to to take the floor and to and to you know to be able to tell their own stories suddenly it's i mean i, I don't know it's it's who've you got like Dennis Miller in the States was one of them and uh, Christopher Hitchens over here in the UK, you know, like there's a tendency to skew for these very outspoken former liberal firebrands tend to, they skew right wing towards the end there. And mm -hmm. it's because they're so used to having people to shout at and people stop wanting to listen. But it's especially infuriating when it's someone like Gilliam, who's like, his work has never oh. been political yeah. really. Well, I tried not, to rationalise it in my head, Devlin, as mm -hmm. was he just trying to make... And you're right about Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. I mean, like you said, you, you've got all the press that you need. These yep. these two have just been in, nominated for two uh, for Academy Awards. But I was just wondering if he was trying to remain somewhat relevant in a really misjudged way. Uh, was he just trying to be a contrarian, like you said, put himself on the outside again? Because that's where he, yeah. he, he feels most comfortable. But it was so misjudged. And the worst thing that I've seen, not that I've delved too deep into it because it's just a depressing cesspool of grossness, is that, that I've seen a lot of kind of right-wing-ish YouTuber folk that are like basically writing it off as, it's the guy from Monty Python, guys. It's all a joke. And you're like, ah. Oh, that, no, no, mm, no. You, mm, you know, that, it's not, it's that not can't be the, If you keep repeating it with such further whenever anyone like yeah it's it's stubbornness i guess mm. it's just a shame isn't it and but we would be completely like i said we would be without doing ourselves um or all or, or the listeners uh you know a favor of actually giving oh, the context, nice to, but... it's nice to explore the context yeah yeah i mean obviously the thing is everyone's everyone's you know mileage is going to differ on these things there, there will be people who will probably think that I'm just sad you for know. you, Devin, because I consider Gilliam one of your heroes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'm the same. Well, I, I, I guess that's and that's that's part of it, really. That's I guess why I thought it would be nice. I mean, for one thing, I wanted to 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 watch this film with you guys because I I was assuming that you hadn't got around to it, and I didn't know whether it's not especially available. Um, well, you you say get round to it. I'll be honest, mate. I'd never heard of it. Right, like, honestly, right. honestly, that really? that is. Yeah, no, I'm being, I'm being serious. This book, like a book, uh, Baron Mansion was second to the Bible at one point in the 18th century. Seriously? I know, but Patrick, I wasn't alive. I know, but I know there's storytelling. And yeah. I was familiar with this big time. There's what, a dozen film editions as well? <laughs> yeah, but George Morales, um, he, he made a, a version of this mm -hmm. way back when, one of the original, like, one of the originals. Hey, Devlin, get a load of this guy. <laughs> so we've done enough talking uh, around around the filmmaker himself. Why don't we talk about the film? So, hmm. Devlin, you got a plot synopsis for us? Um, let's have a go. Uh, I didn't write one. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good luck, mate. Um, but this tells the story of, uh, um, was it, it's, uh, uh, the, in the age of reason on a Tuesday, Wednesday, it's a Wednesday, Wednesday, oh, Wednesday. This is a, this is a Gilliam trope, isn't it? This whole thing of like, you know, naming an entire era of history and then specifying the day or time that it happens. Yeah, it's playful. Um, 
Uh, but yes, in the, in the Age of Reason, we're in a town of indeterminate location. Jonathan Price has some sort of German accent going on, but um, uh, the leader of the theater troupe is Scottish, so fuck knows. Uh, which is uh, currently under siege by the Turkish army. And during a theatrical performance of the uh, adventures of Baron Munchausen, an old man with a dog turns up purporting to be the real Baron and decides to correct their inaccuracies by uh, delving into the stories of his insane adventures. And then he sets off uh, on a new adventure with, uh, with a young girl, the daughter of the theatrical troupe's owner, uh, to try and save the town from the bombardment. Knowing the fact that this film was a, a sort of a famous box office bomb, mm. the first thing that came to mind when I saw the opening shot of the battle and the um, the sort of the siege town yep. was, oh my god, there is so much money on screen. <laughs> I was thinking like we've got we've got period costumes, we've got explosions, we've got <laughs> hundreds Stunts, of horses, but look yeah. at the ornate design of the cannons and the, all of the it's design. It's it? all Gilliam, and he's he's making sure because this is a beautiful looking film. Oh, yeah. it really is. Yeah, with, For what, you know. Whatever problem it has, it's very beautiful. But for me, I'm thinking, this would be a great day at work. Get those 500 <laughs> crowd ready and get them going to war. Yes, please. I love days like that. On, on, yeah. on it's, it's expensive looking. It's all up there on screen. All the money. Um, mm. more that you can, you can tell that it's, I, I think, I mean, he's always known as a, as a real stylist. Obviously, that's, that's basically his calling card is. Uh, crazy plots and beautiful design, or very maybe not beautiful design. Usually, it's it's just that it's very rich and very almost overwhelmingly busy design. But um, I think working alongside um, Rotuno and uh, Ferretti and the other like all the craftsmen in, in in Rome, it's just it's really beautiful. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't kind of he doesn't lose the the sense of grittiness to it. You know, it's it's still like. It's still lived in. You could imagine uh, helmed by a lesser filmmaker who can bring all the elements together. This opening sequence could just be a really cheap episode of Sharp, but you know, Gilliam mm. manages to <laughs> kind of properly give you it gives you depth. You remember when we were talking about Dancing with Wolves and um, the opening shot of that, where you really got a sense of the landscape and the world immediately. I had the mm, same, yeah. I had the same feeling about uh, the opening to this film. I was just like, I I know exactly where I'm at. 18th century architecture <laughs> design, and it's a it's just lush. And if you've ever been to Budapest, um, then it's it's got that similar feel to it. It's great. I, I loved it. Loved the opening shot. Fantastic. There's also shots in this opening sequence. Isn't there that tracking shot that goes from the ground up to the statue? Yeah. on the overhead view and it's just like oh, okay we're in for something cinematic here like that looked amazing yeah, uh, the, the big beheaded statue that they made and so the it's the Turks isn't it that's sieging yeah. so the, the, the Ottoman the city at that point it would be the Ottoman Empire but oh. yeah they, they, they refer to the Grand Turk <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a big old hat it wasn't. It wasn't until literally just before we started this episode that I realised that maybe all the talk of Turks is bit racist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, maybe. I guess if if you'd have said Ottomans, they don't really. It's not really a thing anymore. 
So I, I wonder if they were just trying to avoid any kind of historical inaccuracies. Yeah, yeah. They, don't, they don't call yeah. them the Ottomans at any point, do they? They just call mm. them the Turks. Yeah, and it's pretty weird, isn't it? One thing that really struck me at the beginning was Jonathan Price calls him uh, Baron Munchausen, mm. whereas everyone else calls him Baron Munchausen, and yes, it's the only time we hear that that uh, differential, which is weird. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in in performance terms, uh, it's a, it's a kind of I guess it's pretty common with with the Gilliam films that performances tend to be cranked up a little. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit theatrical, a little bit. I mean, I, I love Jonathan Price. He always makes yeah. a such good bad guy, and a, he does a great job in this film. He yeah. does, and it's, it's so ironic, isn't it? Considering his his role in Brazil in his previous film mm. being the polar opposite, the person yeah. trying to get out yeah. of the oppressive state, and now he's the one who's enforcing it. It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice little, he, um, nice little little. He laps thing. up though, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, he does. His, his little um, his title is great as well. It's it's, it's you know the right on the right ordinary Horatio Jackson. <laughs> I like these. I like these little. Um, there's always like a. You can tell that um, when when he makes these things, that he doesn't re. I don't think a lot of well, I think a lot of ideas w- would get thrown out, but I think they tend to be. There's plenty stuffed in there. I rewatched um Jabberwocky the other day. And I, I, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I just realized, like, even back then, even back in the late seventies, he was stuffing. I think maybe it's the Python thing, that kind of quickfire zany wit, but it's just these little, little moments throughout it. It's like any opportunity to put something in, no matter what it, what it may be, you know, a funny name, a silly accent, a weird <laughs> hat. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Oliver Reed gets that treatment, doesn't he? And you can extend that um, that idea of of everything goes in Devlin to the production design, right? Because every composition yeah. is full and it's full of detail, and that's what I was referring to when I suggested that maybe you could draw a comparison with Tim Burton. Is that mm. everything in the frame in this film is there for a reason? And it, and, and mm, yeah, yeah. You look to the left, you can look to the right, and there's detail everywhere, and that's where. I wanted to kind of um, sort of bat for Gilliam in a way when you when you hear stories about this guy who's out of control, who's just this maverick throwing money at the wall. It's like, no, this guy is detail orientated and knows exactly what he wants on screen. And and if your problem is with his vision, then don't give him the money. But don't don't sort of proclaim that he's some madman who doesn't know yeah. what he's doing. With um, I guess probably every filmmaker has this list of like the great lost projects. But you mentioned one previously, like the um, that was Sam Ham wrote a script for Watchmen that he was attached mm. to briefly in the very early nineties, and there is a there is literally a book, literally the book of lost Gillian movies, and um, one of them was he was going to do a Tale of Two Cities, I think. Oh wow! Um, wow, that would have been something. With uh, and what's interesting is that he talks about it. In, he can only really talk about it in purely Hollywood politics terms because that's all that there's left of it. Um, and they talked about this was in the early, maybe ninety three, ninety four. Um, so he was talking about how he was going to make it. And like you say, that um, you know he has a reputation as as a madman who just builds shit and just throws stuff up and doesn't think about it. He plotted out exactly what he needed to do, and he'd actually managed to. Uh, create a plan that he said there was no standing sets anywhere in the UK uh, that was big enough to look as if it was um, Dickensian era London. 
God. So he was going to uh, make that, but he was also going to be able to offset the costs of production design by working alongside a studio to, to create a standing set that would mm. then, you know, generate more income for them. Um, so he had thought about it. It wasn't just that, you know, I'll, just, I'll make an old London and fuck it. We'll see what happens. Like he'd, he'd meticulously planned out what the funding was going to be mm. um, to do so. But uh, he said, weirdly, the, the the film fell through because they had Mel Gibson attached and they had a budget of, let's say, 50 million, pulling a number out of thin air. And how much do you want? 10 uh, or something. <laughs> well, Gibson, Gibson passed because uh, uh, he got the opportunity to direct Braveheart. Oh, shit. Uh, and so Liam Neeson became involved. Liam Neeson was straight off of Schindler's List at this point. Oh. And uh, Hollywood said, uh, Neeson gets you 35. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. Oh, That's, my God. God. That's the that's the mass that they do. Let's do so an improvisational comedy. <laughs> <laughs> no one could believe me. I was Rob Roy, Oscar Schindler. I'm all, <laughs> I'm always writing lists. Why Spielberg cast me as Oscar Schindler? Stephen said. Stephen said. That's exactly what we're looking for. <laughs> Oh, sorry about that. Just a little tangent there of, uh, of uh, <laughs> little Irish lilt. So good. Um, can I? Can I? Um, can I? Can I say something though about the the opening the opening act? Uh, as beautiful as the yeah. uh, kind of theatrical reenactment of, of Munchausen, and thematically what they're doing, sort of ironically suggesting that he was just full of fantasy and hot air, and and, and having a little wink at the audience. I've got to say, and I'll be honest with you, the opening 20 minutes or so of this film, I found to be a little bit of a chore to get through. I found it difficult oh, to kind of access. It's not tight, is it? It's not tight at all, Patrick. And I, so I said, I, I'd never heard of this film. I've heard of The Princess Bride. Love that. Mm-hmm. Beloved childhood favorite. I wonder if they had a better conceit for how to get Munchausen's, you know, tales started. You know how we had Peter Fork telling the children's I tale see. and then we go straight in this felt too long right i get you i think so too i i i wrote that down as well i kind of i kind of wished uh, see i want to go down the roots of i i have a bit of a problem with neville as well i i don't think he's that good in this film dare i say oh, okay okay um, all right that's interesting and I kind of wanted someone to really take me by the collar. If this is a really fantastical person who's had this history and he's really selling himself as a storyteller and stuff, I don't think Neville did that good a job in that. I wanted someone a bit... Everyone's quite large as life in here. You said it yourself, Devlin, that performances mm. tend to go up with Gilliam. And Gilliam didn't want Bunch- Munchausen... Bunch- Bunchausen? That's what you get when you cross <laughs> Baron and Munchausen. Um, <laughs> He didn't want Baron Munchausen to be a known actor because he didn't want it to take away from the film that it was just a star yes. doing it for a star's work. Now, I get that. I just kind of wish that the performance had a bit of seasoning, had a bit of oomph, had a bit, I don't know, something to just grab me, my attention from the start and get me going. I think he's a little monotone throughout it. Okay. Okay. Is there anyone that you could think of, Patrick, at the time then? Because I know that they they looked at Peter O'Toole, I think, yes. initially, which I think would have would, would have been 
well, would have been interesting. I don't know what Peter. I don't know if Peter O'Toole's got the sense of humour. I don't know. Peter O'Toole's. He's got a tongue in cheek, certainly. But oh, he did in Phantom. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I did try and actually think of someone. Do you know who I thought of? But he'd have been too old at the time. But John Gilgood would have been fucking brilliant when he was younger. Right. And because I just I, I needed someone a bit richer and I don't know. A bit more upstanding. I guess I, what I like about um, his performance is just like the kind of um, sort of grouchy patrician air about him. Like mm, he is a baron. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it makes sense that, you know, I, I, you know, he's, he seems like vaguely pissed off yeah. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time. I, I like his, uh, I like his grouchy, I like his grouchy sequence where he's just waiting to die. He keeps telling been, uh, get away. Is that the sea monster? Yeah, but that's the only time I really found any proper emotion from him when he was had a go at Sally in mm. the sea monster when he's playing oh, cards. Yeah. Why won't you let me die in peace once in a while? Yeah. Really nice yeah. Well, because he tries to die almost immediately when we get the first bombardment after the uh, after the, the theater sequence. Um, well, that was the, the that was the moment, there. Devlin, that I um, that I, I I think I started to connect to the film. Was okay. one we see an unbelievable vision of the Angel of Death, which would have scared the bejesus out mm. of me as a child. I thought it was so yeah. affecting, and it because it's like it's both terrifying and beautiful. And and I just thought the way that it kind of comes to life and the craftsmanship and the detail. I mean, again, CGI, I don't think, could replace the feeling I got watching it for the first time this week, mm. where I was like, wow, that is stunning. This is when she sets it on fire to start with. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. She she throws the lantern and uh, and it transitions from being the the, the, the puppet work into the, um, the stage set painted on the fabric that oh. kind of burns oh. away. And just to go back to what you said, Patrick, about John Neville, I'm, I'm sort of half an agreement i think he gives like a statesman like performance but there is a twinkle in his eye of and a kind of acute awareness of his own delusions it's almost like a werther's original grandfather <laughs> who's a little bit mad but you don't want to make him like a bumbling fool i guess the idea is that yeah. there is some he has to carry some... himself with with dignity I'll tell you who would have really brought the performance to life at the time and would have been a really good choice, although not British. Gene Wilder. Mm. Something like Gene Wilder that would have had the nuance and the eccentricity mm. that I think I was craving a bit more of to I bring it to life. More like, a, like a Willy Wonka type thing. Yeah. Not, not quite Willy Wonka. But more, more young Frankenstein, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, okay. No, 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 that's fair. So maybe if we can't all agree on John Neville, I, I do love the character. I do love the idea of someone mm. who is, so um, yeah. is is completely just delusional and embellishes. And it reminded me, do you remember, again, I'm hoping he doesn't listen, and I also don't know his surname, but do you remember Bullshit Dan from university? You know, the kid who, oh, yeah. who um, pro, you know, literally compu- compulsive liar. I remember the first day at film school, he claimed... <laughs> at, at, 17 or 18 that he had his own uh, production company which might have been true yes. and that he, he also a um, surf ninja movie right? he did. with someone like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will remember yeah. that evening uh, but yeah, yeah. Jeez. Christ. yeah I, oh that was it he told the tale of um and this is very munchausen isn't it a uh, kind of because munchausen is a bit of a ladies man he told the story didn't he where he went to a festival 
and he was going out with he met a girl um who was obviously gorgeous and in, she took him back to his to her tent and uh they had sex and then she went <laughs> she went out and then came back oh, yeah. and had sex <laughs> with her <laughs> well she she left the tent and then yeah. came back in, but it wasn't the same girl. They were identical twins. They're both beautiful. <laughs> and then he had a threesome. <laughs> Bullshit, Dan. I hope you're doing okay, mate. I still remember you. So there you go. Characters like that. Oh, you, need, you need them in life, right? Massive Sony PD-170 to a automated uh, to a remote control helicopter. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> he, used to, he used to also claim that he had exclusive rights over the Scarborough surf scene, so he would only he was the only yeah, one who true. could do um, do the yearly festival in Scarborough when it comes down to surfing. So <laughs> there you go. Our very How own pitch that idea for that that short film though that was all about meeting a girl and a night out. We were all like dumbfounded by how good it was. Yeah, yeah. You, well, he even know. he even claimed that he was going to pay me to to work on it uh, with his mum's <laughs> cooking, which I was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll do that." Wow, <laughs> bullshit, Dan. There you go. Anyway, sorry about that. A little bit of a tangent, what is but this, uh, bullshit, Dan's. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was totally. We, we all know Jay from the Inbet- it's the Jay from the Inbetweeners, isn't it? Like, he's yeah, yeah. This idea of the- the fantastical and the compulsive liar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but what I do love again, yeah. just to go back to that opening um, when when really the inciting incident, I guess, is is the Baron is is dying, isn't he? And Sally, the young girl who's kind of starting to question the world, you know, with the poster, which is like, why is it um, the theatre something and sun Henry as opposed Salt to and sun? Exactly, and uh, I love the fact that she's the one that kind of breathes life into the Baron because she's the one who wants to not escape reality, but she's, she's, she's willing to embellish his stories and, and go on the adventures with yeah. him. And that kind of gives him uh, a sort of second lease of life. And she saves him from the archangel of death. I think it was, she, I was she's the only one who can see death, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. And is that, I'm trying to make an association like from poetry that I learned in A-level English. Like, Cause it's a very clever title to start with the age of reason, but I wonder if there's a, a heart to the age of innocence with her, and that's why she's the only one who can see it. Because, right? I don't know. She's got some sort of association. Mm. Like you know, when you're innocent, you you see more than when you're adults. You're blind to certain truths. Yeah, and that's her magical power, maybe. Hmm. Yeah, like just a thought. Yeah. Well, that you know, everyone else is kind of too poisoned by logic and rules and stuff, and. Yeah. And again, this is this is maybe a slight criticism of the film. I wish the group had stayed together throughout all of the adventures. So you know how we see them all together initially, and we see their individual powers, yes. so we understand what they. Can do oh no! I, I quite like the payoff of bringing them apart, and it all coming together at the end. I, I quite yeah. like that. That works. It gives me. it gives structure to the rest of the little things. It's like you it know does, we have it's, to add another part. It's a jigsaw. It's, yeah. it's oh, nice. okay. Well, I I kind of assemble the team. Yeah, I kind of wanted it. to... Well, I guess it's bringing the band back together, but I kind of wanted it to be more of a a Wizard of Oz uh, scenario where they're all going on the adventure together, so we can kind of get to know them a bit bit more because that was the only right. thing is that like I said I can't remember couldn't remember the character names, and if I'm honest. Hmm. That is that the, outside of their power. That's what defines them as characters. So I just, I just felt like I didn't have an emotional attachment to any of them, which is a shame because yeah. I, I would have liked that. But I did to the Baron and I did to Sally 
so I suppose they're my they're my emotional conduit. I think that that was possibly something that he and Charles McKeown had worked out in the screenplay, and and like we were saying, that it is so busy and so kind of mm. full that if you also fill the screen with a whole gang um, from the start, you'd you'd get a bit exhausted, probably. On the flip side, though, I did get an emotional response from Vulcan and the Moon mm. King and and Venus. You know, the, those other characters that they encounter on the way, they, they have time to breathe. And yeah. before we get to the King of the Moon, I love the invention of the hot air balloon pirate ship. I think, that, I think that's an incredible spectacle. And it is, and in fact, for everything I've said against Neville, I did like the line was when they go, the women are saying, is there anything we can do to help you? <laughs> Give me your underwear. <laughs> Kindly remove your knickers. <laughs> that was it. Sorry, I, I knew I'd, I knew I'd mess that up. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty great delivery when you find out that he, yeah. is, he is, of course, like a total sleaze. Yeah, yeah. Keeps going on about Catherine the Great of Russia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, women. He's just like ladies, ladies, ladies. Oh, you so remind me of Catherine the Great. Empress of all the Russias, whose hand in marriage I once had the honor to recline. They all remind you. Yes, why not? Some bits here, some bits there. It's um, it's it's a, a beautiful effect. I have literally no oh, idea amazing. how they created that, but I mean, it's, it's believe you're inspiring it, right? as an image. The way the the, the it kind of fills up and and fills the entire screen. But then when it's flying along, there's a wide shot of it amongst the clouds. Yeah. It's just, it looks wonderful. Yeah, I really like this mm-hmm. journey. And uh, and I guess it's something that I'll, I'll make mention now uh, before we get into the really quite creative sequences. But the blend of practical special effects, every single thing that Gilliam's ever learned in his animator days, um, they come to fruition here, right? I mean, he literally brings drawings to life. Yeah. I mean, we've got matte paintings, we've got puppetry, we have some optical. Mm-hmm. We've got, I think, huge early sets. CGI, huge sets. You've got uh, green screen. Well, model work. We've got, yeah. we've got it's, it all. It's done. just, it's like a. <laughs> it was nominated for an Oscar for best visual. Oh, well, mm-hmm. rightfully so, rightfully so. So incredible because it's it's not even one of those cases where sometimes with this stuff you can see, you know, you can see the edges of the mat, you can see the opticals, you can see the kind of little joins, and while you don't mind it because obviously that's part of the texture of it. Whereas I don't know if it was just just me, but I I don't even feel like you could see you know the little joins like it all just felt so kind of just. Well, I think that's spread. where the beauty of how he's designed the moon because mm. the, the moon were problems where I was reading about it. I was amazed. It was supposed to be uh, Sean Connery was going to be yeah. the moon king. After you know, because they went together on Time Bandits, and there was going to be two thousand extras on the moon. Yeah, and apparently, when the eclipse came along, they'd all lose their heads. And it was going to be this amazing set piece, and Connery was, of course, being Connery, really attracted to the prospect of being really powerful in charge of two thousand people. Yeah, he wanted that role, and when it was stripped back, Robin Williams came in. And what I like as well is how they just end up on the moon. They fall down gravity and end up on the moon. That's no explanation which i don't need and it's very wonderful well the the, the transitional shot is is literally 
um, without water to stars, yeah, and reflection with without exaggeration. My my favorite shot in all of cinema. So when you have the, the when they when the the stars come alive yeah. and the the stars the they start they start moving and then they become oh. waves and then the 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 light comes up and it starts to become the sand and then they're digging through the sand and by the time they get to the other end of the screen you know they've they've dragged their way through the sand it's, it is legitimately my favorite shot of all time oh wow i mean i was i was taken aback but it, it did look amazing great cool but then it carries on devlin for me because mm. I, I was wow because he, he was very persistent in getting as much of his design of the moon as he can yeah and we are literally greeted by flats painted flats that yes. are on rollers rolling around each other and he, that's him and the production despite, designer literally using yeah. the production designer's sketches and coloring them in in felt yeah. tips. Yeah. And it looks like I, I'm trying to figure out how to explain how it looks because you can see their flats and their painted flats and their two dimensional, but yeah. it's a wonderful visual treat. It's kind of sold really by the works. by the music as well, because obviously the the rest of the score is is so big, kind of bombastic. Michael Kamen orchestra everywhere. And when you when you turn up at the moon, you've got this like tiny little cheap MIDI synthesized fanfare, um, and he's waving, and you hear like piped in crowd sounds cheering for him. <laughs> oh, yeah, great! And then Robbie Williams appears, large as life, as Ray Di Tuto, literally king of everything. That's what he was credited as. Well. Yes, Robin Williams isn't on the credits. Yeah, that was a contractual thing. Was it a yeah, contractual thing? Kidding. Was it they were they were maybe worried or just I don't know. I guess he came in and did a favor. They said that um, uh, they were worried that if they brought him in, because it was sort of like favors being called in for favors. Robin Williams said he'd do it because it meant that he get to go and hang out in Rome for a bit, and also that he'd worked at that studio back when he was doing um, Popeye. So and he'd had a great time oh, making yeah. Popeye with Robert Altman. So uh, he was it, yeah. He was drafted in as a bit of a favor, but they said you can't credit him because um, I guess that Robin Williams always had a bit of problems with this, didn't he? That, um, so they said that they didn't want him, they didn't want them selling the film as a Robin Williams film when it is essentially just an extended, you know, cameo. Yeah. I, I've, I've got to say again, and this will be my last, um, my last sort of criticism of a performance. Again, I found him a little bit too much in this. It was almost like watching him do sort of practices routine in front of a mirror because there was only two of them and that well because it's robin williams playing against john neville and you've already said patrick that he's he's not um he's not as big and i i just feel like he kind of overtakes and it yeah i don't know what it what it is but it, it was the it's the robin williams performance that i'm not that keen on it's a little bit too more commendy for me my old friend you you seem to be in some discomfort what ails you Nothing is me. Can you not see that I am at one with the cosmos? Mm. Ah. Ah. I tell you that and all you can say is, ah. What, are you blind? Baron, let me explain it to you. Since you were last here, I, that is my head, that which is left of me, where the brilliant and important parts are located, is now ruling and governing the known universe. And that which I don't know, I create. I just created spring. But seriously, without me, there would be nothing, not even you. Cogito ergo es. I think, therefore, you is. I think he gets the story going and gets it along. 
I do actually, though, in this moon sequence, really like her performance and her name evades me. Oh, Valentina Cortese. She, she's great in yeah. that little sequence. All the little lip kissing towards and behind <laughs> Robin's back and all those moments are really nice. Mm. I guess it's just, yeah, it's the manic Robin Williams performance. It It is It is a lot. I, I really... Yeah, I really manic performance, but this sequence includes her head spinning 360 as she unlocks the cage. You know, it is a wild sequence. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there is a bit of expectation that it matches the sequence in a way. I just think it's really fun there. Because obviously, like you said, Patrick, this was supposed to be a big, completely different sequence. A big, big, it's like your first big grand set piece. And yeah. instead it was just cut back to, to you know, essentially some very creative effects in front of a black backdrop. But... um what the, the fact that they managed to come up with just a, a riff on like Cartesian mind body duality and then smuggle that into a family film, I, I guess this is a family film, is, is, <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty ballsy move to be like, well, we need to come up with a sequence, so let's make it about this. And, you know, all of these little jokes about like, uh, you know, the, the head having run away with itself and creating new concepts just by closing his eyes and stuff. That was the stuff that really kind of shocked me was just how um, how bizarre it is, and then just the way that they managed to, like you say, chuck in the bodily urges of sex and orgasms. Uh, yep, flatulence and orgasms. <laughs> it's like, oh wow, this film is very layered for a family film. I do like the three-headed monster he rides. Oh, Sybil, because that again, like the hot air balloon, when it's flying through the air, it, it just. I've quite, I haven't quite got the. I don't know how they've done it in a way, like because it looks so good and the flight sequence is really impressive. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I, I really love the um, the all the puppeteering work and stuff. There's there's a lot to like about this. Um, it, there's also I, yeah. I guess because it's so you know the early part of the film is, is so kind of set heavy and and stuff, and they had to strip this one back so much that. I do like that they re- they really go the other way on it. It's like when they find uh, um, when they're cast into the cage with Berthold, it is literally just an infinite black void with a cage lit from one side, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why why try and conceal it? I guess is probably the, um, the yeah. attitude. It's because there's not even stars in the background or anything like that. Is it? It's just yeah, a lit cage. Yeah. Okay. Which is which is pretty cool, and then you know there's the uh, the great escape on Valentina Cortese's head. <laughs> oh, so good! <laughs> With the, the really, I, I do love that moment. I think it's really fun. The the columns that she's got sculpted into her hair. It's the like the top of a, a cello. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I don't know. It's, I think it's really impressive. And then that they end up on the on the tip of the moon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's clever, isn't it? Like the crescent moon is. Yeah. Such, I I think he's done really well to maintain this sequence in, and I I know what you're saying, Gally, and I do understand your point, but I think in a way, Robin Williams probably was a bit of a savior to Gilliam at the time to get an audience for the film as well, because yeah. it, it might have needed that um, to help with its devastating box office. But it to see this stuff on the moon and that transition that you said about Devlin, I'm sure. You're very happy about it. And I like the simple gag, how they get back to Earth. It's just <laughs> silly and nonsense and yeah. fantastic. And they cut the top of the rope off to stick it to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, and does this mean we get to go to my favourite, my favourite part of the film and my favourite performance? We're in, we're in Vulcan oh, now. <laughs> we're all giants down here. <laughs> Oliver Reed yeah. doing a Yorkshire accent with this primitive Hulk of a man. He calls him a trollop. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've got so much love for like the next twenty minutes. It's just incredible. Just when they come in, and and also, you know, we talked about the um, the production design of the the moon. I, I love Vulcan as well. Like it goes from this volcanic, like hot, fiery ash sort of a cinder, and then and then we go into like this little dining room where he's got these little yeah, there's a little spot of fodder what? cups oh. of tea because he's northern yeah. <laughs> so good but he also you know what we talked about the moon sneaking in um you know head uh versus the body we're talking about sex this film manages to just deconstruct nuclear warfare in a in a in a family film when oliver reed's talking about yeah. this new weapon that he's designed that will obliterate his enemies What's this? Oh, this is our prototype. RX uh, Intercontinental. Radar sneaky, multi war headed nuclear missile. Ah. What does it do? Do. Kills the enemy. All the enemy? Ah, all of them. All their wives and all their children and all their sheep and all their cattle and all their cats and dogs. All of them. All of them gone for good. That's horrible. Uh, well, you see, the advantage is you don't have to see one single one of them die. You just sit comfortably thousands of miles away from the battlefield and simply press the button. Especially in 19... You know, before the Berlin Wall fell as well, you know. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So maybe he said he doesn't really talk politics, Devlin, but maybe that was a little slight there. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I mean, there, there is there is like little moments throughout. Um, I guess this is... Well, also, I mean, I, I love the... Um, when they crash land the argument that Vulcan is having with the, with his band of giant cyclopses is, isn't it about like a, they're having a union dispute <laughs> two and a half percent. You know, I, I, I think I, I like the, um, the, like I say, it's just, it's getting ideas and just sort of smashing them together and see what happens. And, and then we're introduced to, um, well, a very young Uma Thurman, 17, 18 years old, um, as, as Venus. And wow, this is a, this is, this is again, it's another, it's another drawing brought to life, isn't it? With the nymphs and the shell opening up. This, this is, yeah, this is his classical art coming through, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, a very naked for a family film. Very naked. It's not very naked for a 17 year old Uma Thurman as well. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those things. She she bloody holds her own in this scene though. Like it's a great performance alongside Oliver Reed. You know, yeah. Well, yeah, she's very mature and very very impressive. Yeah, well, she commands his and our attention, doesn't she? And she's a, she's a bit of a unique beauty, isn't she, Emma Thurman? I don't know how to describe it. She's striking. I yes, know what you mean. she's very striking and and quite statuesque. The way Oliver Reed hunches over, 
and his head, yeah. everything about his because his eyes are so intense. He, he looks like he's about to lamp you at every moment. He's going to just strike yeah. out. It's so, good. It's so good. I do wonder how <laughs> how drunk he was on. I don't think he is. Not with a performance like that doing an accent. If he was going to be drunk, I don't think he'd do an accent. I don't think he'd really give a shit, would he? But he, yeah. I, I think this is a true performance from Oliver Reed. I think yeah, I'm going to give him some credit here. I, I think he's of sound mind. He's, well, yeah, he's well. He's really well controlled in his little transitions as well. There's that mm, amazing moment yeah. where he turns yeah. to the screen and he's like literally steam coming out of his ears and his like oh, eyes are burning so red, and then he just flutters his little eyelids and he's completely changed. <laughs> The dance is something, isn't it? Oh, it's wonderful. It's, yeah, it's a great sequence. And then you've got the little cherubs flying around with the... Fountains going up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And you draw attention yeah. to Michael Kamen's music, this beautiful waltz that's kind of going around. And again, the, there's several effects going on, right? Isn't the one where they're just, um, like, not mannequins, but it's just a, almost like... Yeah, they're... they're are they mannequins? They're little... Spun? Well, yeah, they're just their little, their little models. Yeah, they're, they're ah. literally like a tiny little sculpture, which um is something that uh, was pulled across from Brazil. Uh, I remember watching a making of of Brazil, and um, the sequences where Sam Lowry is, you know, when he's got the uh, the David Bowie paint and the big silver armor, and he's flying around. It's literally a, a toy, probably I don't know, maybe seven, eight inches long, wow. um, and then just shot uh, in a high frame rate. Um, so it's the same with this, yeah. That was literally just a, a very, very sculpted little model. And we were introduced to one of the gang, aren't we? The strong man is Albrecht, who Albrecht, yeah. yeah. And I do it's midget man servant, <laughs> midget <laughs> man servant. And I, again, this is Gilliam, isn't it? Being playful, so his um, he's retreated away from from what his you know his normal strength and and size, and he just wants everything to be dainty he likes dainty things and again it's just uh it's wonderfully playful i i yeah i like the way he waddles in backwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah with that little kind of what, what do they call that the little like maid's headdress yeah <laughs> you know the little the headdress he's got on <laughs> makes him look like a giant baby about, like, a very earlier good practical effect as well it was when he carries out all the treasure from oh yeah, the yeah. Stuff, which I, I really liked the how that looked. That was really cool. We haven't mentioned it actually, but I think um, I'll make mention now of Sarah Polly's performance as Sally because we've we've talked a, uh, a little bit uh, on the show with films involving child actors, and we've we've always complimented those ones that don't don't basically irritate us as adults. You know, <laughs> sometimes they can be troublesome in a in a in a film. I think she's so good in this. She's so beyond her years i think she's like eight or nine years old maybe during the shooting but we said i think we talked about sarah polly in almost famous she's quite an intense person she brings that intensity to to a performance even as a child i think she's she grounds the whole film i think and uh yeah i think she's 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 wonderful in this i think that i think it's that thing i touched upon earlier just this with her seeing death and i think we are seeing a lot of it through her eyes through the gaze of the the direction of it um, rather than the Baron because she's listening to the stories and learning the stories and quite enjoying them. And she's great. Like she's one of those young actresses that's far beyond her years, isn't she? It's Gilliam did. He says he enjoyed working with her quite a lot and she enjoyed working with him apart from being terrified to death. And 
and almost dying. He said that uh, uh, she wasn't sure that he should really be working with child actors just because, you know, he doesn't really physically make this. I'm sure, like, you know, these kind of films would probably be great to, to play around in because, you know, the imaginative stuff and, like, the how great the sets are. It must be easy to, to lose yourself into it. But, yeah, he's also setting off a lot of explosions near that little girl's head. Mm. Also, at one point, Charles McEwen literally falls on her out of a boat. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yes, yes, saw that. And at one point at the beginning, I think it's Charles McKinnon has there's a bit of the set that falls on him. Mm. And at the end of the film, when what's the horse's name? Bucephalus. When Bucephalus comes to the rescue at the end, it fucking twats someone around the head. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's crazy because it jumps over a line of like people, mm. and it catches one of them. I'm like what? I, I thought <laughs> maybe mental. those were uh, um, because of the way it folds. I just I got the impression that that was like a literally a, a mannequin on a stick. No, mate, that is a that human being yeah, getting yeah. clocked in the head by a horse in the back of the head. Yeah, and he doesn't <laughs> flinch. <laughs> He must be a. I mean, it's obviously stuntmen and horse hands mm-hmm. to to be that close to a horse doing. Still that, not great but... though, is it? <laughs> oh, moron! Yeah, yeah, no, it's crazy. And and yeah, I I think um you know because a lot of people might recognise Sarah Polly from you know Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake, and and I I always liked her performance in um, Doug Lyman's Go from '99. Yeah, uh, she's great in that. She was great in um the the Sweet Hereafter, mm-hmm. the um, Adam McGowan movie. Uh, and she's a fantastic director. Yeah, yeah, and this is it now. She's like a fully, you know, she's one of the highly influential indie filmmakers, and and it's just a, such a shame that she had, um, she felt like she had such a traumatic experience on this that she would no longer do studio films again, which is um, it's a shame. Just speaking from a perspective, because you know, I often have ch- child performers on a set, and. Especially in the background, you, you've got to have chaperones, you have age restrict, whichever age bracket they're in dictates their hours and you've got to have breaks and a lunch break. And if you've got them five days a week, you need to educate them and have tutoring. There's no way that film was getting made today with, with her. You know, you'd have to schedule your days, shoot and shots around the hours that would enable her to have a normal life mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and she's in every, well, she's in every. What, what is she nine in this? No, nine, or I think so. Nine, yeah, I think eight or nine. nine. Yeah, so you know, yes, I think you'd you'd be allowed to have her for ten hours. I think off the top of my head, she recalls being in a freezing tank of water for hours, yeah. running through explosives, explosives going off accidentally near her, going to hospital. She lost her hearing at one point. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, bloody hell! How did this film get published? An- another reason why his reputation you know, going forward may have been of this maverick crazy man. You know, it doesn't help that Eric Idle was like, you know, never be in a Cary Gilliam film. It's madness. It's craziness. And then if they, if studio heads are hearing stories of Sarah Polly, young child being put in, uh, in an active danger, then all these things uh, are going to kind of be a bit of a blight on your, on your record sheet, aren't they? Just a bit. Yeah. We move on, don't we? Because we now go inside the belly of the beast. Is that right? We are. I love the transition. Again, we've talked about the creative one to the moon, but just the way that the the just flips the camera for the for the ocean, the coming out of the volcano, yep. and and, it's <laughs> and like, everyone, every, yeah, everyone's uh, everyone's swimming upside down, and then that's it. They flip around. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I can't swim. Done. The uh, the monster looks ridiculous and i guess this is like the you know referring to classic stories this is like the story of abe right 
pretty much going straight into the monster, the belly of the monster. With a Terry Gilliam playing the accordion. <laughs> I once I had a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> then there's another great appearance of death in this sequence. Like yeah. When dealing cards, which is, you know, literally dealing your fate. I really like the imagery here. And then the reminder of Venus and, you know, I, I wrote down here my notes, like, why on earth did Sally tell Vulcan that the Baron was kissing Venus? Like, she's, he's kissing your wife. You go, hmm. I thought they were kind of a, I didn't think she'd snitch on him that way. I was well, because, um, she, why. she keeps trying to drag them away from, because she's trying to, uh, to get them back to save the town and he keeps being distracted by trying to get laid. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Snitches, snitches in order to get them. And every time she just wants them to, you know, to 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 get out of there and 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 get back. She's the one thing that gives us that kind of, I guess, not dramatic stakes, but some form of forward momentum. Um, so she's kind of saddled with slightly un, unenvious task of being the the bore, like you said. Yeah. But again, th- this is me being maybe overly critical because we are in an episodic. Uh, structure but i did feel even though i'm loving all these sequences that i was missing that on what what is at stake here what is at stake what so we're moving from here to here it's a bit messy isn't it from a from a kind of just a pure story point of view i think we needed to know how in danger the town was or even to cut back mm. to it more. Well, there, there is a there is an edit fresh from, air from... in the boat, like because yeah. she says, and he goes, "No, they're fine, they're safe." Yeah. And we get the batteram on the door, like constantly banging, and the chaos. But you definitely, I'm definitely more empathetically drawn to Sally, like the Baron. I think you're right, Gally, and I think we need more oomph and I don't know, like driven story from the Baron. You know, he he is the titular character and he's not really driving the plot at all. It's Sally. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a problem there. I think that's why I had a problem with Neville, but maybe it's not Neville as such as the writing. I do think it's a bit flimsy here in his motives and his drive. They tried to make it that when the Baron isn't being imaginative, he's close to death. I mean, that's obvious, right? We got that right at the beginning. So we see all of the gang age and then de-age. And I think Sally even points it out and he says... He has a way of rejuvenating the year. But I don't think that makes as bigger an impact as it might have done on the page in the script. And I think had we had more of that where we knew, okay, if the Baron doesn't embellish these adventures and and kind of push himself. So that's where I'm sort of struggling with the emotional attachment. I'm loving the the pyrotechnics i'm loving the creativity and the look but i'm struggling to kind of like understand right what's at stake here and i keep forgetting about the town and and i shouldn't be real yeah i like the stuff like the kind of the aging and the de-aging of the baron are just sort of woven through it Mm, i like that Um, a lot that's very nice with uh you know that that when he's with venus he's the youngest you see him and then as soon as they're plunged back into the sea he becomes old again and then when he's in the boat he looks the oldest point and um i like that it just that it's just in there for you to find i guess um it just feels more true to the spirit of something like a, a book like this or like a you know a fable or a story where but i can understand also why that would be as a pure like cinema narrative it's it's a bit lost well here's the comparison hook 
It's got its problems. I It's a beloved one for me, but I think it's definitely because I watched it as a kid umpteen times. Dealing with similar yeah. themes of, of trying to, your imagination, rein, reinvigorating yourself. Similar. Now, I know which one is the better film, but I do think that Hook executes, it's just cleaner, it's just simpler. Now, you can say that that's just, that Spielberg doing it, keeping it, you know, keeping it simple, keeping it dumb. And Gilliam's going for a slightly more, um, more complicated, he's trusting his audience a little bit more. But I do think that that's maybe one of the other reasons why this film hasn't, you know, just, I'm just only, only for me that I just, I had no idea that this thing even existed. And, and I really should have done because this is up there with, it's in the same ballpark of Labyrinth, Hook, The Princess Bride. But I had no idea hmm. of the adventures of Baron Munchausen and it's dealing with those similar yeah. themes. I think trying to sort of drill down to what it is that, that I kind of respond to about it so much is that I really, I, I, I like the sort of the messy, the messy way it plays out it's um the the way that the reality and the fiction just kind of fall on the floor and in the order that they do and and um i like that you have to kind of dig in to find what it's trying to say if it's trying to say anything you know you um but i can yeah i can see why that would it would completely hinder it as as being a, a kind of a lasting thing just because that messiness unless you're unless you're really really into it i just think yeah it would, it would be a bit exhausting and also might just feel a bit kind of arbitrary you ever think though so one thing i kind of had a problem with what galley's saying yeah i never really feel that the baron i never i'm never convinced he cares that much no no that's that's that is true which yeah i i and i think again that's like I think the 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 Baron himself is supposed to be the the bullshitter at the heart of it, and that Sally is probably supposed to be your POV character. Okay, because um, yeah, his, his he just he just wants he just wants to do his uh his his adventures, and he wants to you know to die. Yeah, he wants he wants to either die or he wants to or he needs to be relevant. You know, he wants to remain relevant. Yeah. So he goes off on this on this quest. He takes this quest to save the town. But when he gets there, he just keeps getting distracted anyway. And then forgetting why he's doing anything because something more interesting comes along. And I guess that fits the sort of the idea of like the lying baron, the, the Yeah, yeah. Life kind of you know, it's not it's not like a Don Quixote where Don Quixote is um is driven to do chivalrous acts. It's just that yeah. he, he can't. He's too kind of you know because he's a deluded fool. Whereas, I, uh, yeah, Baron Munch has a slightly different creation. So it makes sense that he would be a little more remote, I guess. It's it's one thing for that to be theoretically the case and to sort of make sense in and of itself. But if it makes it less fun to watch, then it, it becomes an issue. So Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a balancing act. But I, I'm just thinking as well for people that may not have seen it, it could be a bit of a barrier to entry that it doesn't quite follow normal conventions, uh, I guess. Yeah. Is, is what I'm saying. And then we're treated with another amazing image of him riding the horse, rising out of the sea. Yep. I really like that image. That's really cool. Um, they're back at the town. 
yeah, they wash up on the shore. And this is it. We're into like the the big climactic battle, aren't we? The end battle is like everything else. Just kind of, it's it's good fun. It's very silly. Everyone from the right. I love this end battle. I think yeah. it's wonderful. Everyone from the team gets gets their little moment. <laughs> Well, I really like the, I know you had a problem with Idol Galley, but he has a really great moment here. And I can't think of bullet time in anything before this. Forgive oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone points it out to me if we've had it before. But the bullet gag is great. Yeah, it's really fun. This is like Quicksilver that we get in the X-Men films yeah. now. And running after a bullet like that, I think it, it's a really good gag. And actually, Neville does a good job again, actually. I oh, know it's, it's kind of... Oh, he does have his moments in the film for everything that I said earlier, but when he, cause doesn't, um, the, the idea in this shot, literal shot, a sniper is going to shoot the Baron as he's chopping down the whole Turkish army by yeah. himself. <laughs> so he's defeating them on his own. And then Eric Idol saves him by diverting the bullet because he can run faster than the bullet. And then, uh, Baron Manchester says to him, what, something like, come on, man, do I have to do everything myself? I'm just going to make mention, because Patrick, you'll appreciate this, just the sheer amount of logistics. We've got elephants, we've got horses, we've got extras, we've got machines, on on sand. Weapons, explosions, pyrotechnics, health and safety, you've got water, you've got... Well, they're outside, they're exposed to the sun. There's all of this. Imagine feeding all those people, getting them water. All these things that I'm thinking about. You've got a child actor in the middle of it running alongside the explosions. You've got actors, stunt doubles, the works. here. And they had, to, they had to film it at the wrong part of the schedule. But, uh, the back end? They were just, I, I don't remember where it was at what point, but they, they had no intention of filming this sequence at the time when they filmed it. It was just that they had a massive um, problem with the uh, costumes for another section. So they just had to do this. Oh, they had to put it together in a, in a couple of days. There's, there's, what's his name? The strong man, like spinning the ships in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, the spiraling horse. The spiraling horse bit, you know, when he's spinning 360 mm. in the horse. That looks amazing as well. It's, I really like this whole section. I think it's really cool. We have to remind yourself that this is 1988. Every now and again, you're like, this wasn't four or five years ago. I mean, this is over two decades ago. It's incredible. The way, it really does. You know, when we say, like, does it hold up? Now, this stuff really does hold up. I think, uh, yeah. Well, what holds up more than anything is my favorite shot in the film. I was, I kind of, my jaw dropped a little bit. And we haven't spoke about, did we say in the story that, when he gets back on land, the Baron says, right, I'm going to go and sort this out. I'm going to go to them. And he says to the Turkish leader, you can behead me. It's fine. Uh, you know, just to solve the issue. Now, when he's being put down, lowered onto the executioner's block, we have this tracking shot back from oh, him. God, yeah. Yeah. Through the crowd. And the crowd kind of step in simultaneously to fill the gaps. Oh, boy, that's a shot. Yep. 
just that keeps is going. Unbelievable shot. Well, if you again for those people that may not have seen the film yet and, and are listening to us, if you think about the Helm's Deep shot in the two, oh, yeah. which was done using computer generated images. This is done for real, and like you said, there are people stepping into frame on time with the camera pulling back. It's, um, it's incredible. It looks it looks so good. I said it earlier, like those battle sequences at the opening of the film, I'd have had a really good time at work. I'd have really enjoyed this shot. This would have been great to have organised. Because yeah. it looks amazing. You can get creative with it and put, get people involved and... Hmm the payoff of that shot i was really quite excited by and then and then we have the the big parade um and then i did the whole of the parade sequence i love we have a return to that shot which is the tracking up to the the death statue where yeah. the sniper nest is should we call it and jonathan Wright price is there and i really like this is a really simple thing but a, a good effect done well i really like is when um, during the parade, Baron Munch has a shot in the chest. Mm. I, I love, love the effect on his chest. Like, there's a real oomph to it, like a yeah. boom has been shot. And, you know, nowadays you get a lot of digital shots and digital blood for people getting shot because it's a, a cost effective thing for costume. Yeah, you don't have to That's clean a, up. But I'll tell you what, that Baron getting shot in the chest, I'll take that any day because it looks amazing. It's really fucking shocking. Like after you've had the, you know this this big kind of carnivalesque battle sequence, which does have beheadings in it, but of course, like you say, the the heads are popping off like uh, like like toys. You know, it's it's not. This is it's pretty it's pretty visceral. It is, mate. I um like I said, I, the first time I'd seen it this week, and I just assumed that someone was going to come and stop Jonathan Price. So I I had no idea that we were at this point. I thought. Uh oh, Terry Gilliam, we're gonna have another sad ending. Um, I was, <laughs> I, was, I was like, I was primed for it, and then death comes to the doctor. Mm. Death dresses the doctor comes to his aid, but this time the adults are stopping Sally intervening, and the death takes his life finally. And then, we, and then we have like a a funeral with the big oh, with the big boom booming choir and stuff. <laughs> Check check out the extras who are lowering him in the grave. Their arms are shaking under the weight of the uh, <laughs> the glass topped coffin. <laughs> yeah, really. No, Devin. Wait. Yeah. This is bizarre, right? Isn't it? Because we get the funeral, we get the story, and he has told stories of dying. Yeah. Is there a quote about he likes dying or something? Well, yeah. So he says uh, that was one of my many examples so, of. Yeah, everyone's having like you know, there's literally like a sobbing funeral, and you realise that this this big colourful pinwheeling adventure that you've been uh, uh, on for the last two hours has ended with your lead character just dead. Yeah. And, and then, it, but then he's alive. The voiceover comes in and just says, "That was, of course, only one of the many times <laughs> I've died. An experience I wouldn't hesitate to recommend." <laughs> <laughs> No explanation. It, just yeah, alive. It's Gilliam. The, the, the townspeople are now just kind of standing around where they would have been during his funeral. And, and yeah, then they go and uh, burst open the gates. Open the gates. It's another yeah. example. What I like about when they open the gates, the smoke's still there, as though they've just had the battle. Yeah, it's, a, it's another example, isn't it, of Gilliam uh, sort of toying, toying with the audience and, and really toying with expectations yeah. and... Uh, and again, I wonder if for someone who's coming in afresh with no idea or never even seen a Terry Gilliam film, whether this messing around of your emotions would be something that they would welcome or just be like, oh, no, no, no. Like like I said, it, it does throw the rule book completely out. Um, but I, yeah. I, I liked it. I was like, 
Oh, I found it quite fun. Yeah, I was like, bravo, Terry. I thought we were doing the sad ending. <laughs> but no, yeah. the adventures continue. But I, I do love just, I, I love how much they throw they throw themselves into the death scene. And, that, and that's how it ends, isn't it? Sally, well, Sally's kind of... That's, that's it. She, yeah. he, he literally... Oh, well, he's got the, the flower, and he's off, He's going to offer it to the, the, the ladies, oh, yeah. and, and Valentina Cortese is pushing herself to the front, but he, <laughs> sing, he, he looks down at um, Uma Thurman, but then Sally gives him a little... <clears throat> it's uh, it's quite sweet, because yeah. like, you, like you were saying, he's, he's not exactly... Um, uh, he's not a, a, a lovable protagonist type character. He's, he's, you know, he's pretty gruff throughout. He's, he's quite short with everyone at all times. So, you know, he begrudgingly throws the flower down to Sally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fitting way for that character to, uh, to bow out of his, his own story. So, and that is it. That is the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um, so I guess I will, I will ask. Uh, I'll go to you, Patrick, first. Final thoughts, and would you recommend uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen to uh, to our listeners? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. There you go. Over to you. No, um, I I really enjoyed it. I I like always like Terry Gilliam films that I've seen. Anyway, I think the first one I got into was Twelve Monkeys at the time, and I think that was I, I remember really liking the score Twelve Monkeys, and I really like the score here. Um, but with Baron Munchausen, I think just as a visual feast. Uh, first and foremost, I'm going to say I'd recommend it because this example of filmmaking from back then and the scope and the scale and the sheer wonderment, you, you know, like I don't think you get a lot of modern filmmaking today. I don't think Michel Gondry would be doing the stuff he does today without things, uh, without Baron Munchausen and Gilliam's practice in, in this era. Um, I do have my reservations about the lead role uh, and the lead. I'm going to say character and the acting because uh, I, f- I feel like I'll talk, open my eyes up a bit more to Neville. Um, so I don't want to solely like criticize him, but like, uh, you know, the rest of the cast, I think are brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Devlin, thanks for showing me. I was, I was amazed. I haven't seen it because the trailer even had an impression on me when I was younger and hmm. I'm amazed it's taken me this long to, to see it. Um, and Gally, you've never seen it. How about you? Yeah, I think um, I found a, a poll quote of Gilliam describing this as 18th century science fiction. And uh, and I think that, that kind of really does sum it up. Uh, I, 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 you're right, I'd never seen it before. And I must say, I feel slightly disappointed that I never saw it as a child because I know I would have I would have loved it and it would be a beloved classic of mine. So seeing it for the first time mm. this week, um, I'll admit the first sort of 20 minutes was, was a little bit of a struggle to get into. Um, but once, uh, once the angel of death turns up and it, it kind of, I got, I got fully on board and, um, yeah, everything started to work for me. There, there's a few issues. You're right. I think there's, there's issues of dramatic stakes, but the film itself, the way it's structured and it's epito- episodic, uh, structure kind of means that it's kind of sequence to sequence and, if you don't like one, there'll be another one that's coming up that you'll really enjoy. And like you said, it's a it's a proper visual feast. So I think if you're if you enjoy Labyrinth or Hook or The Princess Bride, then uh, then you should definitely seek out uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And, and like you said, Patrick, I'd like to thank Devlin because I've never seen this before, and there's no way I would have ever sought it out. So um, thank you for um, 
for introducing it to me. Mm. Um, I, yeah, uh, uh, just a quick one as well, like because I, I watched it twice, Devlin. I definitely found myself enjoying it more the second time. Yes, agreed. Right? Yeah. Agreed. I took it more seriously the first time, and I relaxed into it in the second one, and I saw it far more as a family younger film i think i was I, I don't know what was wrong with me the first time i think i took it too seriously and too much in an adult mind frame the second time was far more enjoyable i i think i know mm. exactly what it is patrick um i think your enjoyment of this solely is solely dependent on your mindset so if you're looking for adventure fantasy yeah. pure escapism then you've got to go out and watch yeah. this film just let it wash over you mm. just, yeah um, and, it. and it's a family film that uh, that both young and old can enjoy because it really has got something for everybody. So, yeah. Now, what about you, Devlin? I mean, I think we know what you're going to say. Uh, well, I'm just, I'm really glad you guys enjoyed it, to be honest. I think that's, um, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's as, as you're well aware, it's, uh, it's a film that I, I hold very, very, very dear. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, the other people that you guys especially have, have seen something in it that you like. Um, I, I, I see what you mean about, um, I guess that's always the the one problem we have if we're to, if we're looking at films for a for a podcast for the first time our first watch is is inevitably going to be colored by the idea that at some point we're going to have to talk about it and evaluate it and <laughs> something like this is so kind of um the the very best parts of it and the parts that that I find kind of so transformative and wonderful are just so kind of gossamer light and and it, it literally is, you know, it's it's hot air and fantasy. So the idea of um, having to sort of dig into that and break it down and 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 deconstruct it, you can end up just killing it. Or that you know that it's that it's not going to hold up to that sort of scrutiny, really. Um, not to say that you can't. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we poo-pooed it for you, though. Yeah. Did we? No, no, not at all. And that's what I mean. It's not to say that you can't like that you can't um, uh, critique a, a film like this. Of course, you can. Um, uh, just that, yeah. It's 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 such a, a strange little experience that um, it's it's always uh, yeah. I think it's best enjoyed just as a as something that's gonna wash over you. Um, I think. And like I say, my critical faculties for this are pretty much nulled because I, I really yeah. do love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's there's stuff that that I think could have could have changed it. I, not to say that I think they would have been better with a with any of the big sequences put back in. I think there's plenty of of visual fantastical imagery and stuff going on. I don't think it needs any more. If anything, um, could be tighter, couldn't it? it? Well, I was I was honestly going to say that I I think it could be. Um, it could have more room to breathe. Sometimes it, it's it's so manic that I do know that Gilliam talked about uh, his preferred cut coming in around 20 minutes longer than this, which would be, it would depend. I think some people would find that. I think, I think you've got to get uh, the, the intro tiring. And then you can um, maybe yeah. maybe expand expand out the, the more fantastical it's, elements. It's certainly a film to be admired, admired, hmm. though, admired for uh, the, the scope, the, the ambition. Um, it's not, yeah, I'd rather see that than a film that, well, the Brothers Grimm. Yeah. 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 It's tied so, to a producer. This is a sketchbook come to life. So for those people that are um, seeking out the adventures of Baron Munchausen, you can, uh, you can find the film on Amazon. 
uh, to purchase or rent. It's also on YouTube and Google Play. I got my DVD from eBay. Yes, there was a there was a DVD, uh, an old DVD version. There was also a 20th anniversary Blu-ray, which came out in about what it would have been 2009, I guess. But you can still find that. I think it is, and there's a there's a really detailed and candid. Uh, making of documentary that kind of goes into more of the financing and the uh, the logistical issues that they had uh, in production uh, that as well we're seeking out just a quick one to everyone out there i uh, i think podcasts are getting more and more popular now and one of my and our favorite ones that's new that we've, we've just discovered is um uh film stories it's uh, available on your podcast on all mediums and on twitter if you want to follow them it's film stories pod um by the individual at simon brew uh i was i've been listening to these guys since christmas well these guys to simon since christmas um in fact on my drive up to my parents now in Annick, i spent six hours listening to him uh the most recent one what what they do galley dev what he, simon does is each episode he'll talk about two films and he's got like this encyclopedic knowledge of all these films and he tells you the story of how they're made or the problems that the films have in the production and interesting stories about them it gives a slight opinion about the films but he's not he's not really there to review them so the, the last one i listened to was about air force one and kindergarten cop <laughs> that was all in one episode so it goes from one film to the other he also did um which was actually very helpful when we did the podcast on Nightmare Before Christmas. He, he did an episode on that, which was full of detail and really great as well. He, uh, one I really enjoyed on the drive up as well he, uh, on Role Models, because um, I like that film a lot. And I can't remember what that was coupled with, but I swear it was another comedy. And I was kind of laughing along because um, it's a really interesting um, concept, this this podcast. I don't I, What I like about it is just the full story you get on how the films are made so just a quick shout out to um at simon brew there and uh if you're interested in more how films are made and their actual stories then that's a good podcast to follow no no that's great thank you very much patrick and uh, yeah we definitely champion champion them this leaves us to uh our next episode which patrick i believe is your choice so what are we going to do next on the show right i'm going to take you back to 1959 uh. <laughs> And we're gonna we're gonna watch a film <laughs> called <laughs> called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Holy shit! Did not see that one come in. That's what we're gonna watch next. Um, I had a little wager with myself that at least one of you would have never have heard of it. Yep, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think I've seen this. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Good. Well, um, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, fortunately for us, Disney Plus was released this week and there's a free seven day trial and it's available on there. Otherwise, it's quite hard to find on eBay. It's quite expensive DVDs to find. So the timing is very right for this one. And yeah, enjoy. We'll say goodbyes. It's Galley in Glasgow and I've got a galaxy to run. So I don't have time for flatulence and orgasms. See you later. Oh, not another quote. <laughs> and it's Devlin in London. Thank you very much, guys, for watching this here very silly film with me and for liking it. It's nice. And it's Patrick in Anik at the moment. I am a goddess. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. <laughs>